Dr. Kristen Oja here, entrepreneur and functional medicine expert. Welcome to Little By Podcast, where our goal is to empower you to achieve optimal health, one step and one episode at a time. Taking a functional medicine approach will cover a variety of health and wellness topics, from how to optimize performance to how to balance your hormones and everything in between. This podcast is for educational purposes only, so please be sure to consult your healthcare provider before incorporating any changes into your daily routine. Now grab your headphones and let's go for a walk as we take steps towards becoming your best self. I am so excited for this episode with one of my friends and colleagues at Stat Wellness, Kyle Capon. Kyle graduated from Emory as a nurse practitioner with dual training in emergency and family medicine. He has been seeing patients for over 12 years in a variety of settings, including the emergency room, urgent care, family medicine, and now functional medicine. He believes that instead of being a medical dictator telling patients what they ought to do, he seeks to serve as a healing partner alongside his patients to help them reclaim control of their health and achieve maximum wellness through the restoration of the mind, body, and spirit. Kyle is passionate about providing medical care internationally. He has served across the world in Cambodia, Rwanda, the Dominican Republic, Honduras, Mexico, Uganda, India, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. As always, we don't want to be identified by our work. Kyle is also a loving husband and a doggy dad to his border collie mix, Lucy, who is absolutely adorable. You may find him and his wife running the trails or trying hole-in-the-wall international food. They also love to explore the world in their sprinter van that they custom outfitted. How cool is that? Welcome to the show, Kyle, and now let's dig into heart health. Great. Thank you so much, Kristen. I'm really excited to be here with you. So we're going to first talk about some statistics. So heart health has been one of the number one, or it has been the number one cause of death in the United States for years. So why do you think this is? Yeah, so it is pretty much the pandemic that we have been dealing with for uh, decades now. And um, the research shows people about one in um, one person dies every 36 seconds um, from cardiovascular disease. It's about one in every four deaths. And uh, it costs the U.S. over $219 billion every year. So this is a massive, massive, massive issue. And I really think so much of the increase in cardiovascular disease has so much to do with the modernization of our world. Um, people getting increasingly busy and less time to do things like cooking healthy food, fitting. Everyone knows what they should be doing, exercising more, getting more sleep, stressing less, eating more healthy. And unfortunately, the the stresses of our life, the commitments that we have, all of the different factors in our day-to-day life tend to be putting people at odds with these healthy goals that they want to set for themselves. And I do think that's one of the things that's kind of cool about heart health is lifestyle plays such a role in heart disease. And so you mentioned the things we know we need to be doing, like moving more and eating better. But when we get busy, it's easy to go through a drive through or maybe, you know, pre-pandemic, we had large or long commutes to work. So we were sitting in the car for hours on end and exhausted by the time we got home. So it's hard to get a workout in. But I think there's little things we can do. And hopefully throughout this podcast, as we talk, we'll be able to identify some small changes that we can make. 
So what, one of the big things that we know is in functional medicine, we really want to figure out the root cause of people's symptoms, but we also want to promote longevity. We really want to identify a disease state before the disease is present. So when we treat our patients, we look at, okay, you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol. Once we've identified that, now we're kind of managing it through lifestyle, of course, with the root cause, but how can we maybe catch this before it's an issue? So, you know, you go to a physical once a year, maybe you spend 15 minutes with your healthcare provider and they run a standard lipid panel, maybe look at an inflammatory marker. Uh, but what do you think? Is that is that a good approach to catch this disease state early or what are some other indicators we can look at? Yeah, so the current understanding of heart disease and heart health is actually a pretty drastically changing landscape. The model that the majority of people operate on is actually about 50 to 70 years old. The cholesterol lipid model of heart health was um, developed in 1940s, 50s, and it still remains the primary thing that most people are looking at. But we've got you know, little silos of certain people who think are beginning to understand that there is, it is much more complex of an issue and there's way more things. So, for example, uh, there's uh, research came out in the Journal of American College of Cardiology just a couple of years ago that half of people who have heart attacks have normal cholesterol. So, even if you go to your you know, standard primary care, hey, your cholesterol looks pretty good, your levels are all right, you're healthy. This is only helping about 50% of people. And um, we know that for about half of people who have heart attacks, having that heart attack was the first sign that they really knew of them having heart problems. And so when we think, especially in functional medicine, we think about a spectrum or um, a continuum of disease. And we don't want you, the first time you've been told you have a heart problem is when you're sitting in the ER with EKG leads and all these things strapped to your chest and you're getting rushed into the cath lab. We don't want that to be the first time that you're told by a medical professional that, hey, you have a heart problem. We want to catch you as early on in that process as possible. And so, yes, the lipid, the standard cholesterol panel is a good tool. There's actually some things on there like triglycerides and your HDLs and LDLs that are a great first step in assessing your overall heart and cardiovascular health. In that world of lipids and cholesterol, something that I really love is something called an NMR, There's, which goes through LabCorp, which looks at your LDL particle number. The most up-to-date current research shows that your particle number is the most sensitive indicator of how likely is your cholesterol and your lipid kind of environment to cause damage. Because we know that it is it is the particles of the of the LDLs that are actually as they're going through your blood uh, and bumping up against the 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 blood vessel. It's those particles. It's the number of particles that you have, and kind of how big or small those particles are, is increases the likelihood of those particles causing damage to the blood vessel wall. And so, one thing that I really love looking at is an LDL particle number. Uh, other um, 
ways, really easy ways to check is something called an ApoB. Very simple way for your primary care to check that. But looking at the LDL particle number, the LDL particle size, and um, the I like the NMR because it looks at also your insulin resistance, and we'll talk about this more, but your insulin resistance score based on the characteristics and makeup of your particles. And so that's something that if anyone is any concern at all, that would be one of my number one go-to things to check. That was a lot of great information right there, Kyle. So let's break down even just going back to a standard lipid panel. Let's say that's all somebody has in front of them. And they were looking at total cholesterol, triglycerides, HDL, LDL. Let's kind of break that down. Like what is HDL, LDL, and triglycerides? Yeah, so HDLs, I always like to use that first letter, are the happy cholesterol. These are cholesterol that I kind of think of as, some people call them the the dump trucks. Those things are going around and they're kind of scavenging unhealthy cholesterol and they're really regulating the balance of cholesterol in our bloodstream and in our body. The LDLs, these are the ones we call like the lousy ones. These are the ones that are a little bit more dangerous. When these LDLs start bumping up against the walls of the lining of your artery, these things um, cause much, much, much more issues, especially when there's a lot of them. Now, I guess backing up a little bit further, uh, these HDLs and LDLs are called lipoproteins. They're little uh, molecules that are composed of fats and proteins, and they're actually little transport vesicles like a ship. And so uh, um, these things are carrying a number of components in them. These LDLs and HDLs actually carry cholesterol. They carry triglycerides. They carry fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K, amongst other things. And they're transporters of these things to the tissues because you need cholesterol. You need these fats. It's critical for every cell in your body to function properly. Just when they get really out of balance, it's just an issue. Now, triglycerides, these are how your body takes, uh, especially sugars, uh, carbohydrates, starches, these types of things. Your liver takes those um, nutrients and packages them up in these triglyceride molecules. And that's really the active storage form in fat of your sugars and carbohydrates. And so especially when we see those triglycerides really high, that's when we really think, okay, there's probably a lot of extra glucose and carbs and things. And that in and of itself is also a, a, a big issue for cardiovascular health. And what do you think about the ranges that are that you get when you get your report? Are those good ranges or do you have different kind of optimal ranges when you're looking at a standard lipid panel? Yeah, so I really like to see for sure. So a standard range for triglycerides, you know, they're going to say less than 150 is great. I like to see people less than 75. If people are getting between 75 or 100 to 150, that's an early indicator that there's some metabolic dysfunction there. They're not regulating their blood sugars and their carbohydrates. There's insulin resistance beginning to happen. Again, for your LDL, they tend to say, oh, less than 99 is pretty good. And then if, you know, maybe you're 120, 130, 140, oh, you really should work on your diet and exercise and lifestyle. You don't qualify for a statin, which are those kind of heavy hitting medications that help to lower your cholesterol. You don't really qualify for it yet, but, you know, maybe in five or 10 years, if things keep getting worse, then you'll start that. So even for an LDL, um, I am most interested in your particle number because two people can have LDL cholesterols that are the same. 
one person's particle number could be much higher and one person's particle number could be much lower because those LDL numbers really measuring how much cholesterol is inside of your LDLs. And so that can be drastically different um, compared to the actual size or particle number um, based on that LDL number. And so, um, but generally, for sure, under 100, if people are under 70, that is even better. And how important is it to increase that HDL or, like you said, that happy cholesterol? Yes, this is an independent marker for cardiovascular health, definitely. For women, usually they say 39, men 49. I like to bump that number up 10 at minimum. If we can get, for women, at least over 50, for men, definitely over 60, then we're starting to talk optimal health there. That's awesome. Yeah. I think there's so much that people don't understand about their cholesterol profile. They look at that total number and if it's at, you know, 201, uh, which that total number they want under 200 based on the conventional reference range. And they see it at 201. And I've had a lot of my patients that are just, they're terrified. They're like, what happened to my cholesterol? It's elevated, but they don't realize they're, they're happier. Their HDL cholesterol is 86 and their LDL cholesterol is really not that bad when you look at the ratio. Do you calculate that ratio with your patients? I do like to look at that ratio. And off the top of my head, I don't have that number in front of me, but I definitely want to see um, a lot of people like to even see the HDL to LDL ratio one to one for sure. Uh, similar to triglyceride to HDL is also a really good one um, to measure. I know some people will do two to one. Again, I would like to see those triglycerides down into like around 50 in that HDL. So even a one to one ratio there would be optimal um, if you're getting those things pretty, pretty equal. Awesome. Awesome. And then you mentioned APOB. What is, what is that marker? The APOB. So every LDL particle has an APOB protein attached to it. It's kind of like a signal signaling protein. And so, uh, it's a very, so there's a whole range of LDL particles. There's very low density, intermediate density, low density. There's always different types of LDLs, and every one of those has an ApoB protein on it. So if your doctor isn't able to do the full NMR, which is the fancy uh, full lipoprotein advanced profile, an ApoB is kind of a... a a cheat way, but it's 100% accurate way to measure your particle number. It's kind of a surrogate measure. Okay, awesome. And these are things that they can run through LabCorp, like a standard lab through insurance. 100%. And these are things that we do frequently at Stat Wellness on our patients. And I don't know about you, but it, they, they don't seem to be expensive. I haven't had any patients complain about costs when we run these through insurance, which is a great way to utilize your insurance. Exactly. And that's what's really cool is we can really hack a lot of the basic insurance options and get a ton of really amazing data for our patients. Great. And is there any other, as we're talking about markers, is do you have any other favorite markers when we're talking about heart health and longevity? I have a ton, actually. Oh, good. So good. Let's hear them. My, my, so right under the lipoprotein profile, the next thing we have to talk about is glucose. How your body is managing glucose, insulin, and carbohydrates, this is one of the number one ways that we can assess your overall metabolic and especially cardiovascular health. 
for a fasting glucose uh, is one thing that's really simple to get on a metabolic panel. We want to see you between 65 to 85 for optimal glucose regulation. For your hemoglobin A1C, which is like about a 60 to 90 day average of your blood sugar, we want to see that less than 5.2. And for sure, for a fasting insulin, I really like to see people at least less than seven, but if we're in the three to five range, that's that's even better. And and really, what this is telling us is uh, again, how is your body regulating and man- managing glucose? Diabetes, in and of itself, is a um, major risk factor for cardiovascular disease. That is well accepted in the the entire medical community. And so, anything that we can do to catch as early as possible early signs of metabolic dysfunction, early signs of glucose dysregulation, where you are not managing that glucose, you're becoming insulin resistant. Anytime we can get those things, the better. Oh, I think that's awesome. Blood sugar is so, so important. And that's one of the things people don't realize is we in America have sugar in everything. Even if you're getting organic salad dressings or things like that, there may be some organic cane sugar. And so one of the things I do with my patients is I have them start to read labels and track sugar grams. And they are blown away by how hard it is to keep sugar under, you know, 20, 30 grams per day of added sugar. And that shouldn't be that difficult, right? I mean, if I think that part of the problem is in America, our taste, we really crave sweet foods. So if the food industry all of a sudden produced all this food that had no sweetness to it, the standard American's not going to like it. So I think that metabolic state is a really important thing to look at and catch early. And you mentioned insulin that you like around three to five, which I think is a fantastic place to keep that fasting insulin. What is the range in conventional medicine? Like what is a normal insulin? We know where you like it, but what what do they consider to be the reference range? Well, on our lab, they say less than 24. Um, And I know a lot of times that can be for... They don't, they, they don't specify as much. I know a lot of times they'll say less than 24 for a fasting, maybe, maybe two hours p- uh, after you eat uh, is, a, is a general reference range. But I really, the lower we can get it into that three to five, the better. And that's what's cr- so crazy to me. If you get an insulin checked, you know, that's not typically part of a standard physical panel. But if you get an insulin checked and it comes back at 15, 16, 17, People aren't talking to you about the role your diet is playing or your lifestyle, your stress, your exercise on that insulin. And who knows where you would be in two years, even a year at your next physical. Like then your A1C might be elevated and now you get the diagnosis of prediabetes. So I think it's really important to really focus on those optimal levels and prevention. And so obviously that's why both of us are so passionate about functional medicine. Any other markers outside of that metabolic health that you talked about? Yeah. So one thing that we check is called homocysteine. And this is a marker. It's actually an amino acid that's part of what's called the methylation pathway, kind of a complex chemical pathway in the body. But we know and cardiologists already fully uh, understand that high levels of homocysteine are very damaging to the lining of your blood vessels and put you at a much higher increased risk for cardiovascular disease. Uh, Homocysteine in this methylation pathway It's high because of low levels of mostly vitamin B12, methylfolate, and B6. And so really assessing all of those nutrient levels is really actually a very critical marker for heart health. And so that's something I definitely love to look at. 
And that's one of the things I think is so cool because you can see it improve so quickly. So when we mm-hmm. check on our levels, uh, our patients, B9 and B12 levels and their homocysteine, it's got this inverse relationship. So B9 mm-hmm. and B12 can be a little bit suboptimal, maybe normal, but suboptimal. And this homocysteine can be super high. You put them on a good active methylated B vitamin and that homocysteine comes right down, which I, I love things that are this easy, direct relationship to uh, control. What else outside of homocysteine? One thing that is also actually potentially even more important than LDLs, there was actually a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that CRP, especially a high-sensitive C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation, it actually outperforms LDL cholesterol as a predictor of cardiovascular risk. And so they saw these people who had low LDLs, normal LDLs, and high CRP were actually at a higher risk than people who had high LDLs and a normal CRP. A little bit of a confusing uh, math to uh, go through there, but the fact of the matter is inflammation is the reason for cardiovascular disease. And the LDL and the cholesterol hypothesis of the 40s and 50s is only one piece of that puzzle, but really getting a good handle on inflammation, checking a CRP is really, really critical for our patients and figuring out what are the sources of the inflammation and really helping them to improve that part of their lifestyle. And this is another one where the reference range actually changed in LabCorp the last couple of years. CRPs, mm-hmm. they used to tell you uh, zero to five is really where they wanted the levels. And within the last about two years, LabCorp widened that range from zero to 10. And I just think what we're finding in America is we're becoming more and more inflamed. So healthy and quote individuals are having CRPs of six, seven, and they consider that to be that normal reference range. Where do you like CRP? Like what is a normal C-reactive protein to you? Well, the research is clear. Less than one is the optimal. When you're even standard cardiology practices, if you're at a two, you're at a a moderate increased risk. If you're at a three, you're at a high increased risk. So our goal, without a doubt, is less than one on the CRP. So there's really no benefit in having C-reactive protein in the body. It's not. It's a So it's an acute phase reactant, which means when your body is uh, exposed to a stressor like inflammation, toxins, even in the setting of autoimmunity. So the CRP plays a role in helping your body defend itself. But that thing, that CRP needs to be calmed down and corrected. So in and of itself, it's not a bad thing. When it's elevated over time, that's when it starts to have really damaging effects on the body. So cholesterol really is only one piece of the puzzle. It is. It is. And we might even argue a smaller piece than we even than we even thought. So we've got to look at particle size, maybe a, uh, ApoB. We need to look at our metabolic state with fasting insulins and glucose and hemoglobin A1C and definitely monitor the C-reactive protein, homocysteine, some of that inflammation in the body. Mm-hmm. So kind of moving on, since uh, we've got a lot I want to cover today, do you think what we eat or how we move is more important for our heart health? A hundred percent. That's my that's my answer to that question. So this is actually a little bit of a tricky question. And because they're how we eat and how we move do affect different markers of our heart health. And so the 
I think the best way for me to kind of break that down is the highest cause of cardiovascular disease is high blood pressure. That is the thing that contributes the greatest burden of disease to the cardiovascular spectrum. And so the thing that can decrease your blood pressure the most is your diet, is your food. Actually implementing something called a DASH diet um, can decrease your blood pressure up to 11 points. And they know that exercise, it is really awesome. That can decrease your blood pressure uh, down five to eight points uh, on the on those numbers. And we'll talk about those numbers a little bit uh, a little bit later. But the and so that's that's one way to look at it. Now, when we look at things like um, your overall body composition, we know that obesity, being overweight, these are also massive, massive risks for developing cardiovascular disease, especially something we call visceral fat. And visceral fat is the fat that actually is underneath of our abs. This is the stuff that's surrounding our internal organs, like our liver, our intestines, even around our heart. There's fat that surrounds our heart. And there's research that shows that exercise is actually better at decreasing uh, that visceral fat. So now... And, it, and, and as you exercise and build muscle, you actually can continue to burn that fat even when you're um, not exercising. And so, so it, it, it's a both and, and, and you really can't um, separate them out. Now, there's kind of an old adage, and you can speak to this much more than me in, in, the, in the fitness world, but you'll, you'll never out-exercise a bad diet. Exactly. And, um, and so, which is true. And, and we don't focus on calories at STAT because we don't want to um, get people too overly uh, obsessed or concerned. But, but there's a general idea. If you're eating 4,000 calories a day and, and not really exercising, you're going to be putting on that dangerous type of fat. If you're eating, you know, a healthy amount of, uh, of, uh, of calories and, um, and exercising, you're going to be, you know, um, keeping your body composition in a much more um, ideal range. And so I would overall have to say food, what you're eating, what you're putting into your body has the most impact on, um, on your heart health. But exercise plays an absolutely critical role in that as well, for sure. And there's more things coming out too that it's not even that purposeful exercise. It's what we're doing throughout the day. So really that neat factor or the non-exercise activity thermogenesis, it adds up over time. So standing while you're working, going for walks while you're on conference calls, like all of those little things are really also important for heart health. But I do agree. It's, you know, we can't, I always say you can't outrun a donut. And I think <laughs> as you mentioned before that we don't really count calories at stat, we really look at the quality of the calories over the quantity. So you could have a Snickers and a thing of almonds, and you could eat the same amount of calories in both that Snicker and almonds, but the way your body responds to those foods is so different. You know, that Snickers is going to increase our blood sugar significantly. It's going to trigger an inflammatory cascade, which as you mentioned earlier, is is really important to control when we're talking about heart health. Not to say you can't have a treat every once in a while, but you know, 80, 90% of the time, what are we eating is really going to influence our heart health. And so the two studies you just referenced with the DASH diet and exercise, I mean, you're talking about 11.8 point, you know, reduction. So that could be almost a 20 point reduction in your blood pressure if we change the way we eat and change the way we move. Exactly. And, you know, 
I think there's kind of this this misunderstanding that you know our lifestyle. Oh yeah, it probably plays a little bit of a role, but you know when the pharmaceutical companies are developing a drug, if they can get a drug to drop your your blood pressure by ten points, that's a superstar. That is a money making drug, and so if we can get people to drop their uh, blood pressure and improve their heart health with working on food and lifestyle, um, that is. It's more effective than medication. And so I think that's something that's so overlooked, even though we all know it and is so, so, so critical to put into play. And then you think about the benefit risk ratio. You know, what are Mm -hmm. the potential side effects or risk of these medications versus changing your diet and exercising? And so that's really why at Stat Wellness, like we really believe in that pyramid where their base is lifestyle. If -hmm. we're not eating well, if we're not exercising, managing stress, you know, the supplements, the medications, they aren't even going to be as effective. So we've really got to work on that foundation. And I know, you know, as we're talking about blood pressure being a big indicator of heart health as well, I know it kind of sounds elementary, but I want us to kind of break down what blood pressure is because people always say the top number and the bottom number, but like, what are those numbers? Where should that blood pressure be? Exactly. So the two numbers, you know, we 120 over 80. You know, you probably everybody has heard that number. And so we got the top number and the bottom number. The top number is what we call our systolic blood pressure. And the systolic represents how much force is your heart or what is the the pressure that your heart is pumping to move the blood throughout your body in your uh, arteries and veins. And the bottom number is called the diastolic blood pressure. And that is what, when your heart isn't beating how much pressure is sort of in residual or just kind of hanging out in your arteries and your veins. And so when both of those numbers are actually really critical because if your heart has to pump really hard to move uh, the blood throughout your body, that's that systolic number, that can really cause uh, weakening of the heart. It can cause the heart muscle to change in shape over time. And you can eventually, over the course of years, develop things like heart failure and, and stuff and abnormal heart rhythms because of that, all that stress on the heart. But if that diastolic is very high, then we know that the arteries and the veins in your body are very stiff and they're not nice and calm and relaxed and able to expand and contract because they're actually muscles too. And the, the veins and have a small muscle layer in them and they should be really flexible. And so if that diastolic number is high, then we know that there's some dysfunction going on on the vascular level. And so under 120 on the diastolic, under 80. And this is actually something I'm really happy about. The most recent uh, American Heart Association guidelines say that if your um, systolic is in the 120s, uh, then you are pre-hypertensive. And if that, and then if you're 130 or more and 80 or more, that is full on stage one hypertension. Whereas it used to be when I first started practicing, once you got over 130s and um, then, you know, those those numbers and those classifications have gone actually way down because they're realizing we have to get way, way, way more aggressive at controlling these blood pressure levels. Especially with it still being the number one cause of death. A hundred percent. So I've read a few studies that really talk about kind of 110 over 70, maybe being the gold standard now. Is there any dangers of, of having a blood pressure at 110 over 70? Not a bit, no. And 
uh, albeit I, I would say that just depends on the person just a little bit. For the vast majority of the population, I agree that is definitely an optimal uh, blood pressure. Uh, the things you want to look for, if you're, you know, some people's blood pressure gets down to, um, you know, 100 over 60. Uh, these folks, if you're starting to get really lightheaded very easily or, you know, blacking out, getting dizzy, these kind of symptoms, then we need to look at things a little bit closer. But um, for most people, being around or under 110 over 70 is perfect. And I think one of the things, too, is if you're somebody that does have high blood pressure and you drop it quickly to that 110 over 70, you're not going to feel as good because your body has become adapted or accustomed to this slightly elevated blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your body's used to having that. You know, it, it's going to feel like your blood pressure has bottomed out. Yeah. What about heart rate as it relates to blood pressure? Does your heart rate matter? Heart rate is actually a really, really great thing to be monitoring. The standard reference range is 60 to 100. That's what we learned way, you know, 20 years ago in nursing school. And the, but really the research shows that if we're looking for an optimal heart rate, we should be shooting between 50 to 70. Um, we see a lot of folks who are kind of like marathon runners, high intensity athletes, their heart rate is nice and calm in the 50s. Uh, the average person, again, sick between 60 and 70 is a really nice number. If your heart rate is starting to run higher, then we know that there's a, a degree of what we call autonomic dysfunction that's going on, which is where there are certain systems in your body, of your nervous system that aren't regulated properly. And we know that if that heart rate, your resting heart rate is 80 or 90 or close to 100, the chances of your blood pressure being high and other issues is also going to be much higher because that's just a lot of work for at rest for your heart to be beating 80, 90, 100 times a minute. And there's just no dynamic range for your heart to be functioning in. What counts as rest? So rest would be uh, obviously when you're um, sitting in a cool, calm room, feet on the floor, not a lot of stress or stimulus uh, in the room. Those would be times when we're looking at resting, uh, resting heart rates. If you're stressed out at work and just sitting there, um, you know, some people that the, the kicker is that where um, you're sitting in your car and driving and in and, and, and Atlanta traffic and things are crazy, you know, you, that might not actually be a restful time for you. Uh, and so it's really in that that place when you don't have a lot of external stimuli or things that are triggering you. And I think that's something important because a lot of my patients that monitor their blood pressure, they'll be stressed running around, sit down for a second and check their blood pressure where, yeah. you know, a lot of times they talk about, you really want to sit for five minutes with your feet on the floor to get that really good, accurate blood pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Even in the doctor's office, you know, how many times you've been waiting for an hour and a half Okay, you come on in, Mr. Jones. You get in there, slap a cuff on. Oh, wow, one, you know, 50 over 90. Think, look like we need to put you on another blood pressure medicine when really you need to be sitting in a calm, dark room. Feet, on, yeah, like you said, feet on the floor at least five minutes, lots of good deep breathing, really calm that sympathetic overdrive nervous system, see where you're truly at. And speaking of that, at the healthcare provider's office, when your blood pressure is high, do you think white coat syndrome is a real thing? I do. I really do. Uh, I've seen it in quite a few patients where 
they come in and their blood pressure is 180 over 100. And what I've done is actually had patients bring their home blood pressure monitor in and they took it, you know, an hour before they came in and their blood pressure was 120 over 80. When they got in the office, they, their home blood pressure medicine equaled, or sorry, monitor equaled what we took in the office. And so I do think there's a component to that. I, I think some people overplay it. And if it's really high every time they come in, then we really have to encourage people to be checking at home just to confirm that it is what it is. And if somebody doesn't have high blood pressure, do you still recommend that we monitor our blood pressure and heart rate at home regularly? Yeah. So again, that's one of those things where it kind of depends what your goals are. I read the American Heart Association recommends if you have a blood pressure under 120 over 80, uh, check it every two years. Now, to me, I'm like, oh, man, I would hate for somebody to maybe, you know, things after a year, it starts creeping up. So for blood pressure, I would love people to be checking every three months. I don't know if there's a lot of data out there behind that, but every three to six months just to really stay uh, kind of close to what you're running there. And then heart rate, obviously, there's lots of really cool tools that you can be using out there. Um, but I would say in the similar time frame, it'd be um, for sure every every few months getting a good resting heart rate. But I really love some of the wearable devices and things that people can be using because it's a really practical and useful information. Well, I want to talk about the wearables for sure, um, because I think that's really fascinating. But one of the things, I mean, that's crazy to think two years of checking it when we know, obviously, you know, lifestyle changes, if you have a drastic change in your diet or drastic change in your exercise or stress levels, trauma, hormones, all these things can influence our blood pressure Mm -hmm. and heart rate. Even if you're a female, depending on different parts of your cycle, things can change depending on the stress on your body. Uh, So let's talk about the wearables. I think that's a really kind of interesting and cool space. I know even like the Apple Watch is starting to do EKGs on the Apple Watch. Uh, Is there some wearables that you recommend or that you personally use and, and why do you like them? Yeah, so I really love the Aura Ring is one that's uh, pretty cool out there. It's really good for tracking sleep and heart rate variability as well. And we can kind of talk about that a little bit as as well. The sleep is actually, if, you know, back to that question, what's more important, food or diet and exercise or uh, diet or exercise? Uh, some people would say sleep is more important than diet or exercise, but um, your body entering into that good, restorative, deep sleep uh, is one of the most critical foundations for your health. And even poor sleep can, and we see that with sleep apnea and other sleep issues, can cause high blood pressure, can cause arrhythmias like atrial fibrillation. And so really tracking sleep is something that's really awesome. The O-ring is awesome at that. The whoop band uh, and those types of wrist Um, heart rate variability trackers are really cool. I think uh, tracking the heart rate variability uh, is one of the number one ways to see how your autonomic nervous system is functioning. And that really uh, tracks how is your body responding to stress and how are you recovering from stress. And that heart rate variability is measuring essentially the space of time between each heartbeat. And it, all, it might sound a little counterintuitive, but we actually want a high variability where your heart isn't necessarily beating tuck, tuck, tuck identically every, you know, so many milliseconds. 
we actually want some variability because that actually means that your nervous system is very sensitive to the requirements and demands of your heart. And so when we have that high amount of heart rate variability, that actually indicates that we have a really, really healthy balance between the parasympathetic, which is that rest and digest, uh, calming, soothing portion of our autonomic or automatic nervous system, which is that part of our nervous system we really can't control more or less. And then the sympathetic is the stress, um, the fight or flight part of that. And that's where we think of our like adrenaline and cortisol and all of these stress hormones who are being chased down by a saber tooth tiger. Uh, the, that's when we can see um, where our heart rate variability gets lower. And so um, our body isn't able to manage itself uh, as as effectively between those two nervous systems. And so we, the whoop band is really great. I know a lot of athletes really like that, especially folks who are weightlifters or CrossFitters because the wearing the ring is really uh, kind of cumbersome. And the Apple Watch is really cool. Um, there's also kind of one of the premium Fitbit uh, bands that's actually in the, in the newest Apple Watch or track, tracking oxygen concentrations, which is really interesting, especially during sleep and exercise. Are you dropping your oxygen levels? Especially in sleep, as those oxygen levels drop, we see a much higher risk for developing um, abnormal heart rhythms and increasing inflammation and different things in the body. And um, the, you know, the data is kind of out out there a little bit with some of the, you know, the Apple Watch that does the EKG. It really is good for detecting if your heart seems to be. Uh, skipping into some irregular rhythms, primarily like atrial fibrillation. I have heard stories of people who got the watch and um, they actually, it helped them get uh, a diagnosis. Um, obviously, you can't make a diagnosis with that in any of these wearables. You want to seek uh, professional, you know, healthcare um, uh, sources for that. But it's a really good tool to kind of keep track of how you're doing and how a certain intervention might be uh, impacting you. Yeah, I think Apple Watch cannot be a replacement for a cardiologist. <laughs> but I do think it's cool. And I and you mentioned the oxygen dropping in the night. And I did read some studies that sleep apnea is one of the causes of hypertension. So some mm -hmm. people have no idea that they have sleep apnea, and it really leads to high blood pressure. And if you are somebody that does feel like you're eating really well and exercising regularly, and you still have high blood pressure, I think that's a, a really important thing to look at is your sleep quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think getting our patients in for sleep studies and, and at least using some of these sleep trackers and, and metrics is absolutely critical. So what do you, as far as the um, different trackers, we mentioned the Aura, you mentioned the Apple Watch, uh, the Woot Band, those all sound great. Heart rate variability, I know, is definitely a hot topic. And you covered what uh, heart rate variability is. If we want more heart rate variability, what are some things that we can do to get more of that variability within our lifestyle? Yeah. So one of the primary things, so certainly um, not over-exercising is probably a, a, a big thing. We've got some folks who, who are weekend warriors or, or like really intense CrossFitters, different things like that. So not stressing your body out too much is really critical, uh, but also really, really, really making sure that we're engaging in um, practices that are really calming and engaging that parasympathetic nervous system. So I really love simple box breathing, which is a deep breath through your nose for four seconds, hold it for four seconds, 
breathe out through your mouth for four seconds and hold it through four and hold that out for four seconds. And doing that really engages the diaphragm, expands the diaphragm, engages that vagal nerve, which is kind of the master of the parasympathetic nervous system. So deep breathing, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, um, incorporating activities like walking or kind of fun hobbies, things like that, where you really are enjoying yourself, actually really create a sense of calm and relaxation in that parasympathetic nervous system. And, um, and then obviously, um, the stressors of life and not, um, you know, really pushing yourself to the limit, whether it's work or family or anything like that, really designing your life to support a healthy balance and all of those things. And so really managing stress well is the number one thing. You just reminded me right now to take a big, deep breath. I just yeah. I did some of that box breathing as you were answering that question. Uh, and that's something that I have to remind myself to do. If I don't pay attention, I'm such a shallow mm-hmm. breather running from one thing to another. And mm-hmm. it again, it's like, you know, you can do deep breathing anywhere. You can be in a meeting. You can be on a call. You can be driving your car and really slow down that breath and breathe all the way to the base of your lungs and hold that breath, as Kyle just mentioned. And that really does also help lower cortisol, which of course, as as Kyle mentioned, is what helps get you more into that parasympathetic state and help with that heart rate variability. So I think deep breathing is just so important for your heart health, for cortisol levels. Um, and I think that recovery you mentioned is really important. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of my patients that use the loop band to kind of dictate their training schedule. So if they're waking up 70% recovered, they do more of a yoga and go for a walk versus the days that they wake up and they're maybe at 90% recovered, they may hit it a little bit harder in the gym that day. Yeah, I love that. And that really is what's kind of interesting is, and everybody, and that's where the functional medicine piece is cool because not every person is going to respond exactly the same to every intervention or everything we suggest or that kind of the common um, literature and stuff out there suggests. So, so having some of those things that we can really track that data for each person uh, is really powerful. I think that's great. And speaking of exercise and training, do you think cardio or strength uh, is more important for heart health? And have you found any data that supports the way you're exercising as it relates to your heart health? Yeah. So this is another one of those where it's, it's a, I think it's a both and, um, the, the majority of consensus that I could find is that cardiovascular disease overall, or sorry, cardiovascular um, exercise, which we tend to think of more of things like running, swimming, biking, perhaps even some of like the hit high intensity training where we're getting our heart rate up into higher, maybe uh, 60 to 70% of maximal heart rate. Uh, those things are going to have better impacts for the function of the heart itself. And it increases the um, just how well the heart beats. It increases the the tone of the blood vessels. And when you begin to rest from cardiovascular exercise, your resting is even is actually even a little bit better in that parasympathetic place. So, so there's definitely 
Um, a ton to be said about incorporating that that those cardiovascular type exercises. Now, I think you know we've all kind of seen maybe those marathon runners who have a pretty good pudge uh, on their kind of waistline, and so we got to be careful because sometimes if you're overdoing some of that cardiovascular exercise, you can actually um, drive up your cortisol levels, and you know sometimes that some of these folks can actually have some dangerous uh, body composition changes. And so again, we just want to be watching things closely. Now, on the other hand, and we kind of touched on this before, weight training, um, actually some research, uh, recent research shows that weight training is um, the most beneficial for decreasing body fat percentage. And again, we don't want to hone in too um, like obsessively over that, but we know that that visceral adiposity, that fat that's surrounding our internal organs, and especially our heart. I read a research that they did uh, MRIs of patients uh, before and after they did a three-month weight training program, and they had decreased uh, pericardial or, or fat around the heart, which is you know more dangerous. And so weight training has some really awesome fat-burning um, capacity, and it does improve things like your blood pressure, your HDL, your LDL, um, your total, you know, your cholesterol, um, and your, um, I like weight training because it, when your muscles are growing, um, it does improve your insulin sensitivity, kind of that whole glycemic metabolic piece. And so, uh, there's really awesome benefits to both. Um, I think the, the simple answer is whichever one you like and enjoy doing more, um, and whatever's going to get you out the door to actually do those things is the best. Um, however, I think both of them have some really great perks. And if you're, um, really combining those is going to be the optimal thing for most people. And I feel like I'm always short on time. So mine are more hit style training where I get some strength training and cardio in that, throughout that one workout. Exactly. Without a doubt. If you're incorporating weights into some, yeah, that high intensity where your heart rate's really getting up, that's, that's ideal. And that's great. And you mentioned the DASH diet earlier. Is that the diet that you think is best for heart health or is there any other diets or do you think it's, it really varies from person to person? Let's talk a little bit about uh, what we eat and how that impacts our heart health. Yeah, totally. So like we said, food is the number one intervention that we can have to, to, to make changes to our heart and overall health. And so the DASH diet is one that was kind of conventionally um, designed. Um, I, it's similar. It's got some similar principles to some other things. Um, the, the other kind of popular diet that's most well-researched is what we call the Mediterranean diet. And that has the best outcomes for uh, preventing heart disease, for decreasing blood pressure, for decreasing the dangerous uh, cholesterol ratios, um, from improving fat metabolism and improving body composition. Um, one thing, so that Mediterranean diet is really high in vegetables. So this is a very, very much plant forward diet. It's got a ton of healthy proteins and fats. We really look at, so the non-starchy vegetables, so things that are, um, I always like to think if, if, you know, if it came from a plant and you can pretty much figure out, um, 
how it got from the from the field to your plate, that's probably safe to eat. If it was manufactured and processed in a plant, that's probably something you want to you know stay away from. And so, really looking for those minimally processed, um, low, not high starchy, uh, refined processed um, carbs and sugars. Those are the things that are really inflammatory for the body, and those those are things that are classically not included in the in the Mediterranean food plan. So, really non-starchy vegetables, um, really high quality proteins really like things like the grass-fed organic um like beef and um looking at like salmon and sardines and mackerel these foods that are super high in omega-3s um and looking at um you know really good uh, grains or actually um, just carbohydrates that are high in fiber which can include some grains as well as things like sweet potatoes and 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 the like and then really healthy fats we love like nuts and legumes and olive oil and avocado oil so some really 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 tasty food uh, and this kind of general profile now that can be kind of mimicked in certain types of paleo um, and other types of food plans but that general kind of premise is the most research behind it for um, the cardiovascular health. So plant forward and whole foods, know what you're Mm -hmm. eating and know where it came from. Yeah. I think it's just, you know, I even shop sometimes and I'm at whole foods on these aisles and I'm looking at the ingredient list and I'm like, I, I'm sure this is a somewhat healthy food. You know, if whole foods is looking at it, not that everything they carry is healthy, but I'm like, I can't, I can't pronounce these words. I don't know what they are. I'm having to like pull out my phone and I'm just like, you know what? It's not worth it. It's, it's better to shop the perimeter as you guys have probably heard, get all the veggies and the fruit and the lean meats and all of those things that don't have these labels that we just get so confused by. So what is a heart health myth that you want to bust? Is there anything that you can think of that you've heard a bunch that you're just like, okay, let's bust this? Well, I think one of the things that I would like to bust is that once you've kind of crossed a certain threshold, then there's no going back. So once my blood pressure is high, well, I guess I'm just stuck to you know, taking these pills every day. Once my cholesterol is high, I guess I'm just stuck. I guess there's really just nothing else I can do. And that would be the biggest thing I want people to, to recognize that there's so much hope for, uh, restoring your health and getting you back such so much uh, to that place of optimal wellness. I think we, we just have done a disservice to people when we, just wait for people to get to a certain place. Oh, now your cholesterol is this high. Now we can put you on a medication. Oh, now your blood pressure is this high. Now we can put you on a medication. And really um, busting that myth that we're just going to let you get this bad and then we can treat you to let's do as much as we can as early as possible. And just knowing that there are so, so, so many things that we actually can do before we ever have to use medications. There's the rare person that I do think medications are totally worthwhile for, but I think there's so many other things that we can do to start with. And then the other thing if I can just add real quick is that fat is bad. I think the fat, the fat myth is something that we, that we really need to address. Uh, I mean, and specifically, um, a lot of like the, like healthy saturated fats in our food and the, and the things that are, um, are actually really healthy for people. And we've gone low fat in our 
um, our country. And I think that's been to the detriment of our health because we're eating a lot of processed foods that say fat free and um, gluten free and all this, but they're actually loaded with sugars and loaded with uh, refined processed carbs that are super bad for us. And so if that was one thing I could begin to help people shift is to see that actually eating some healthy, good fats is one of the best things you could do for your body. Can you give us some more examples on those healthy fats for people that do want to start eating those? Yeah. So I definitely love avocados are one of the number one things I love to incorporate. We talked a little bit about your healthy uh, omega-3 fatty acids and found again in um, your salmon, mackerel, sardines, some of those cold water, uh, wild caught fish. Um, I really like coconut. Um, some of the fats in coconut is really, really powerful for your health, especially some of those medium chain triglycerides are really awesome. So we see coconut oil and um, some of those things. And then um, obviously like Olive oil is one of the best things for you as well. So um, nuts are really awesome. Walnuts are probably one of the best uh, nuts, just really high in amazing nutrient density. Um, a handful of walnuts or almonds, seeds are really, really, really amazing. Um, and and um, like chia seeds and so many amazing uh, options there that we can mix in. And they keep you full longer. So you're going to snack less, which I think is really important as we were talking about earlier, our glycemic control or our blood sugar control throughout the day. So, you know, I think that's a great uh, heart health myth that we needed to bust. Kyle, this has been so awesome. You have been such an awesome guest on this podcast. And I wanted to kind of end our interview with talking about some small changes, you know, little by our whole thing is little by little, a little becomes a lot. That's what this whole podcast is about. What are some little changes that our listeners can start doing today to really improve their heart health? And I know we've touched on this uh, kind of throughout the whole podcast, but what are some like final thoughts you have for our listeners? Yeah. So one thing I would say is really working on the stress piece coming into this time, um, just in human existence with the pandemic and everything. I think stress has been at an astronomical rate and we just barely scratched the surface, even on the role of stress and cardiovascular health. And, and so I think even just simply Taking time to do one round of that box breathing, you know, takes 12 seconds or sorry, 16 seconds. Doing that a few times uh, is super, super helpful. Um, when it comes to food, I think really taking a minute to be mindful of reaching for the chips in the cupboard. Maybe there's some almonds there. Reaching for a handful of almonds, beginning just those small, small little steps working on incorporating some really healthy fats and proteins and fiber um, in your breakfast, maybe instead of grabbing a granola bar or a muffin, beginning to make those tiny little substitutions there. If um, you're at work and you set an alarm every 30 minutes, you get up, walk across the office, drink a little glass of water, maybe do a couple of squats or a couple of push-ups, really begin to engage some of that um, conti in continual movement throughout the day. And I think relationship is a really critical thing. There was a recent research article um, just came out last year that social isolation is the greatest determinant of our health and of, of disease and morbidity and mortality. So if we're isolated from people we love, we're not connecting, 
if especially being in community with like-minded people who really value their health and take control of their health, even just reaching out to those kind of people is going to have a huge um, impact. You know, the heart is, you know, kind of the global symbol for love and connection. And there's really something just throughout the, the millennia that we understand that when we're connecting with people, um, our heart is healthier. So those would be just a few things that I would start off with for our patients and people listening. That is great. And I will tell all the listeners that Kyle does do what he preaches. Um, I have seen you multiple times walk across the gym, do some squats and his slacks and his dress shoes and grabbing water. So he does all of these things. Um, he loves his patients and his wife and his dog. And so it's really, it's, you know, it's refreshing having Kyle at Stat Wellness and having somebody that really practices what they preach. So thank you for that. And I'm sure some of the listeners are so impressed with you like I am every day. And if you guys want to do a free 15-minute consult with Kyle, he offers that. And you can go to www.statwellness.com under book a visit, and you can book a free 15-minute call uh, or come in and check out Stat and meet with him. Um, He is uh, just as awesome one-on-one as he was on this podcast. So thank you so much, Kyle. It was a joy to have you on the Little Bye podcast. Thank you so much, Kristen. It's been such a pleasure being able to spend this time and talking about one of my favorite things. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, remember, little by little, a little becomes a lot. Even the smallest changes over time can lead to total mind and body transformation. I'd love for you to stay connected with at Dr. Kristen Oja and at Stat Wellness on Instagram. And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out. I'd love to hear from you.